If you're a fan of big ideas, debate, and politics, check out our festival partner, Geopolitical Magazine Foreign Policy. A forum for informed debate about global affairs, foreign policy keeps a finger on the pulse of world news and political happenings. Beyond articles that delve behind the headlines via traditional reporting, Foreign Policy has so many other products to offer, ensuring that no matter how you like to engage with eye-opening content, there is a method for you. Check out their free offerings, like Foreign Policy Live, their forum for live journalism, newsletters, and podcasts. And with a subscription, unlock in-depth features and quarterly magazines, including their recently dropped spring edition, All About India. Fans of IAI will love Foreign Policy for more of the mind-expanding, insightful content that they seek. To explore their content, take advantage of an exclusive discount for IAI fans. Subscribe now using promo code LIGHT24 to save 50% and unlock access to everything Foreign Policy has to offer. Welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, bringing you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. In this interview, Kwame Anthony Appiah, Professor of Philosophy and Law at New York University, details his journey and life's work, from why identity is such an important issue, to how his experiences have differed across countries, and to the impact he wants his writing to have. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe, and visit iai.tv for thousands more podcasts, videos, and articles from the world's leading thinkers. What first interested you in moral and social philosophy? Gosh, that's a great question. It's hard to say exactly, but I think it was the experience as, as a teenager of being part of a group of young progressive evangelical Christians uh, in the late 60s and coming to read theology and then coming to read moral theology and then thinking these guys keep talking about, you know, Kant and these other philosophers, so maybe I should read that. I was also dealing with uh, coming to terms with my sexual orientation and wanting a framework that wasn't the framework of a kind of uh, moral teaching that just told you what was right and wrong but didn't say why. <laughs> um, and I wanted to think about why things might be right and wrong in order to decide whether certain things were actually right or wrong. Um, but then, you know, as a profession, so that's why I started reading philosophy, really. And then, including moral philosophy, though I didn't just read moral philosophy, I was reading all kinds of philosophy. Um, and then um, another big impetus was uh, when I finished my PhD, which was not about social political philosophy, it was about philosophy of language. I got a job, my first job, as professor of, um, assistant professor of uh, African-American and African studies and philosophy, and I wanted to teach something in the second half of the job, the African and African-American uh, part of the job that was um, useful to the, that program. And it seemed to me that there were two things that were useful. One of them wasn't social and political philosophy, it was just sort of philosophy of social science and philosophy of biology about the race concept, but the other was ethics, racism, um, trying to understand what racism is, what's wrong about it, and so on. And so in order to do that, having not done a lot of work in graduate school or even as an undergraduate, really, in formal ethics, I had to read up in formal ethics and political philosophy and social philosophy in order to, to do that. So sort of two stages. One is just getting interested in philosophy, which had a lot to do with my sense of who I was, both as a young Christian and as a gay person. And then, and then when I came to um, my first job, I, I needed something to do, as it were, <laughs> in that part of the job, and that seemed like... And then, and then I just got interested, and then I was stuck. Um, a lot of your recent work has focused on identity. Why is that such an important issue of philosophy today? 
Well, it wasn't when I started out. I mean, there wasn't a lot of stuff. And that was part of the reason it was interesting to me. It was because it's nice to work in fields which, where there's just lots of low-hanging fruit, as it were. Um, so I started on work and philosophy of race, which is a, a genre of identity, uh, because I was in this department and it seemed like a useful thing to do. And there wasn't very much. Uh, there, there's lots of sociology, lots of anthropology, lots of, uh, lots of work, relevant work in, in biology, but not much in philosophy at that point. So, I, so that was great because, as I say, you could just start thinking philosophically about something. There's material to work with, but there wasn't a lot of work by, by philosophers. So you could sort of, you know, make progress pretty swiftly um, on race and racism. And then it's natural for a philosopher who's interested in race to think, well, race, because philosophers generalize, <laughs> uh, race is a species of something. What's it's a species of? Well, it's a species of the genus identity. And that was a particularly good time to start thinking about that because the feminist philosophy was really taking off and had done a lot of work on gender as a form of identity. So bringing together my own work on race, which was obviously influenced by the work on gender because that was the one place where there was some decent stuff to work with, um, with the work on gender, you know, you get a more generalized notion. And then, you know, when I started thinking about, well, why do these things matter? Uh, it struck me that actually identity is a central topic in ethics. Um, we, we live our lives, uh, ethics in Aristotle's sense of um, the study of what it is to live well for a human being, the good life, uh, eudaimonia. And uh, identity is centra central to that because we live our lives as uh, Ghanaians, Americans, uh, gay people, straight people, cis people, trans people. Uh, and what does that mean? Well, that's, that's what the ethics of identity is about. And I, I wrote a book called The Ethics of Identity that was about how uh, identity fits into ethical life. And again, that was a somewhat neglected topic. Um, in, um, people have thought about, as it were, our identity as rational beings, that's central to Kant's ethics. But the idea that our social identities, not the ones we all share, but the ones that divide us, are also important in ethics. It's obviously there in, in the political philosophy literature on nationalism and so on but not in a generalized way, not thinking generally about how identity fit in, fits into ethical life. And so that's, I don't mean to say there's nothing in the history of philosophy, of course that would be absurd, but, but it wasn't really a field, a subfield. And so it was, again, interesting and fun to try to define a field uh, in, in a certain sense. You've lived and taught in a number of different countries. What from your experiences differed between those countries when it comes to identity? So my first job, as I said, was at the University of Ghana and their uh, university education was a very rare and special and privileged. There were not a lot of opportunities to study anything. There were only three universities at that point in Ghana. These were people for who, who often came from families where the very idea of a university was a strange one. And, they, who, and their families didn't really know, as it were, what they were doing. They knew that they were very lucky because they knew that people with university educations were, tended to be better off. <laughs> but they... You know, but they, didn't go, they couldn't go home to their families and say, oh, I decided to study philosophy, and the families would say, oh, yes, that's terrific. Um, far from it. So, so that was one thing. And then I taught a bit at Cambridge when I was a fellow of a college, and I wasn't teaching things in ethics. So the question of identity wasn't a topic. But of course, it was very clear to me there were only three non-white people in my college. Class was just an overwhelmingly determinative thing in people's lives and the people I taught. Even though the fact that I was not white 
shaped my contacts and my friendships a little bit. The real striking thing to me was class, and it was, it, and I, I still think that that's one of the great challenges of of the universities in in Britain and in the United States. It's a big challenge here, and I, it, I wrote a chapter about class in my last book. And, and universities play this incredible role in solidifying class systems, and we really ought to be more reflexive about it and, and more careful than we are. But when I came to the United States, um, the most important thing about me for most people was that I was not white, because I was black. So identities, you know, different identities uh, matter in different places. I'd say also that I, probably that I was gay. I mean, I think, I think students, again, the United States was behind Britain in terms of the, the decline in homophobia. So for some gay students, it was nice to have an openly gay faculty member. What is a satisfying impact for one of your books to have, <laughs> or a book in general? So my first books were just aimed at philosophers. They were, called, they, they were called Assertion and Conditionals and For Truth and Semantics. Those are not the sort of books that people rush into bookshops and pull off the shelf because they think, oh, that looks interesting. But once I st started writing both essays and articles and books that were addressed to a wider public, um, it became clear to me that you don't really control what people will do with your books. You can't, you can't, as it were, force them to read them in any particular way. So people took up things that I had said in ways that surprised me and found them useful in ways that I wouldn't have predicted, and that's fine by me. I mean, reading a book is a is a is something of a commitment, and I don't, you know, I think people should do with it whatever they want, and if they don't want to do with it what I would imagine they would do with it, I'm happy for them to do something else with it. So, um. Uh, you know, a, a lot of what's interesting to me in these books is, is, because I'm a philosopher, is kind of the technical structure of the ideas, but that isn't terribly interesting for most people. Uh, what's interesting is applying it, and, and so increasingly, but always from the beginning, really, when I was writing for the general reader, uh, I, 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 I told stories, I gave examples uh, uh, of, of a sort of... Uh, practical sort, often from my own life or from novels I was reading or, or from history books. What I came to see was that uh, there's a kind of understanding which comes from uh, explaining a concept narratively by telling stories about how the concept works that is different from the kind of understanding that philosophers characteristically seek to uh, communicate, which is kind of conceptual understanding, propositional understanding, telling you truths, as it were. Um, it's not that this isn't a way of understanding truths, it is, but it's, it's a different way of understanding truths, and it's one that philosophers aren't, I would say, usually terrifically good at. So I had to learn how to do it. Um, and maybe I'm lucky that my mother was a novelist, and so I, I grew up around uh, someone who, who was good at it, but I'm pleased when people say the book was useful. Then they tell me what they did with it, and I think, oh, sometimes I think, oh, that's very interesting. I would never have thought of doing that, um, and that's fine. If I'm taken to have said something that I really didn't think I said, then I write another book or another article to say to try and get clearer what I was trying to say. And also, uh, I write on the same topic sometimes because I've learned from the response that I got to the last time I were around that I either didn't understand something and that my readers have helped me to understand it better, or didn't communicate something, and I've tried to sort of restate the thing in a way that uh, I think is more likely to be taken up correctly. But you can't rule out uh, misunderstanding, and creative misunderstanding is one of the ways that intellectual progress happens. So I'm perfectly happy to be misunderstood sometimes. Could you talk a bit more about the difference between 
communicating uh, in narrative versus conceptually? So, so let's take something in the lies that bind, which is a book about identity that I wrote recently, relatively recently. Everything I have to say in that book about the role of nationalism in people's political and psychological and cultural lives could have been stated in propositions. I could have just said, uh, national identities operate to bring people together so that they can together run societies and do their politics and things like that. I could have said things like that. The way I did do it was to tell the story of the way in which the development of the Italian nation affected the life of Vitale Svevo, the great Italian novelist. And I, I think people get a better sense of the way in which national identities get a grip on you by telling the story of this guy who's, who's born in the Austro-Hungarian Empire and ends up an Italian. Um, and not just an Italian, but one of the great Italian modernist uh, novelists, even though he grew up speaking German. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, I think that, that tells you, you, know, you can draw many conclusions from that. One, of course, is, is about the, the sort of facticity of nations, the fact that uh, the Trieste is part of Italy, not uh, part of uh, uh, Slovenia, or not, not part of Austria. It's all pretty contingent. Talking about how in the novel he expresses his love for his city, and that that's part of his attachment to Italy and so on. I think those are things that are best told by telling a little bit of the story of the life of Italo Svevo. I could say, and it would be true, that the, the modern concept of race is shaped in the early 18th century in Europe. But I told that story by telling the story of a young boy who came from what's now Ghana to Germany in the early 18th century and ended up as, as the first possessor of an... Uh, European PhD in philosophy uh, by an African, you know, in the course of his life, race is being made, the modern notion of race, being, and you can see it in the way his life goes. And, and one reason why at the end of his life, he returns to Ghana, having lived all his childhood, all his late childhood and adult life as a German, was the, the rise of a kind of anti, a kind of um, anti-black sentiment that made him more comfortable back in this place that he barely knew. Uh, and so, anyway, these stories communicate these abstract ideas, and they also, then you can, you can make the abstract point, and people remember it because they remember Anton Wilhelm Amu. <laughs> uh, and so, in that way, telling his story uh, is, is, is holding, as it, it gives people an anchor, as it were, for their conceptual understanding of the points you're making. What's next? What misunderstandings or misappropriations are you looking to correct in the in, 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 in um, So I'm working on two things now. One is a book about the idea of religion, which I think is a very misunderstood notion. I was raised a theist, and as I mentioned earlier, I was an evangelical Christian as a child and a teenager. But um, but I think, uh, I, but perhaps because of that, I find religion in, in deeply, deeply fascinating. And increasingly, um, I've expanded my interest in religions other than the one that I grew up with. And the second project is a project on another idea that philosophers are, have recently begun to say a lot more about. But again, when I started doing this, it was a somewhat... Um, sparsely populated field, uh, which is what work is, in the sense of a job, and how that fits into ethics. How do our jobs fit into who we are, 
what it is to live well, what it is for a society to function properly, the rise of robots and all of that. And these are very important practical questions in, in policy and, and sociology and economics. But, but the normative question, uh, if you, as, as work changes, uh, uh, what does that mean for the possibilities of a good life? These sorts of questions are not just, they're, they're very important sociological economic issues, but there are also these normative questions about these ethical questions. How does, how does work reconfigured in that way fit into a decent human life, a life worth living? So, so those are the things I'm beginning to think about. So it's ethics. Uh, it's, um, I don't terribly like the term, it's applied ethics. I think all ethics is applied ethics, but, but it's, it's thinking about some important aspect of our lives in terms of the question, how do we do this right? And one of the important points in this area, I think, is that, um, is that one way, one constraint on doing it right is recognizing that doing it right is very different for different people. People are different. And, and one of the dimensions of their difference, to stick to my old hobby horse, is identity. Um, you know, one, one thing that work used to provide was a kind of class identity, which was a positive and important thing. That one of the things that my neighbor, um, my, my working class neighbor in college, uh, had to worry about was being alienated from his working class family by becoming what he was going to become a doctor, a middle class person with a with a different style of life from them and and of course they were worried about it too they were worried about losing losing him in a certain way and that that sort of question uh, now now I know. I don't think we should live in that kind of class society myself. So I'm against those, those sorts of divisions, but I'm not against the idea that you should take pride in what you do. And if what you do is produce things like cars or coal, I think you should be able to take pride in that. And if you can't, we shouldn't, you know, we should get, let machines do it. Thanks for listening to Philosophy for Our Times. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe and visit iai.tv for thousands more podcasts, videos and articles from the world's leading thinkers.